Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Time to say hello to the Pontiff of International News, Jonathan de Berka Butler. Jonathan, uh, good afternoon to you. And uh, Afghanistan, we're going to go to first. And uh, yeah, well, it's Afghanistan. It's not exactly as if we're ever going to get good news from that part of the world, unfortunately. But this is a story that, uh, well, involves monkeypox or allegedly involves monkeypox. Yeah, the second part of that statement is is um, very important uh, because the Taliban uh, are using this new virus, uh, which, of course, um, was announced to us only about one or two months ago, was it? Um, uh, as an excuse to round up people from the LGBTQ plus community, right? Mm. Now, this is a community that, as you can imagine, in Afghanistan doesn't uh, prosper, uh, yeah. for want of a better word. Nor would they particularly advertise themselves, one, well, one would have thought. Well, that's, that's a good question. So, so actually, back in 2018, before the Taliban came back into power and President Ashraf Ghani was there, they passed a law that explicitly criminalised same-sex sexual relations, right? Yeah. Um, but anecdotally, the you know witness statements and um, various different people you know contributing to recent reports done by the United Nations uh, have basically said that you know back before the Taliban came around, it was the, the law was there. But things were largely ignored, right? Yeah. So, okay. so, so, so there were problems. People were going around. They were getting beaten up. There's no doubt about it. And and, but you could be more explicit about it in in the sense that you could kind of dress the way you wanted and that kind of thing. Whereas yeah. now, everything has to be toned down, and you've got to tone the line and that kind of thing. And the Taliban are using the monkeypox virus as an excuse as I said, to round people up and to arrest them, throw them in prison to the extent that people aren't leaving the house, in fact. Now, it's interesting because um, UNAIDS on a global scale has come out and condemned the reporting and the way that monkeypox is being reported. And I've actually heard it on Irish radio a few times as well. You know, news broadcasters basically saying that most of the cases are to be found amongst gay men between the ages of 25 and 45. And we've seen, and it's interesting that UNAIDS have come out and sort of condemned the way it's been reported because, of course, we've been here before with AIDS, where the whole thing was to stigmatise gay people. uh, And it was known, of course, as the gay plague for people who weren't around, uh, you know, at the time. Um, So they're trying to make sure that we avoid that again. And I think the um, this particular story shows how it can go in certain countries if there is a tendency to go that way. Anyway, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no reported cases of monkeypox in Afghanistan, by the way, at the moment. Right. Uh, and in terms of the, the the rounding up, do we know what happens to the yeah. people so, who are rounded so, up? So this is the thing. So they, they, they generally, they get arrested. And what might happen is that they get beaten up. Uh, it, it can be very badly. And then they'll get sent out again, right? So there's various different cases. We know that uh, there was a UN report done earlier this year Um on this whole thing and that one judge had commented basically that stoning and getting a wall collapsed on you was one way of executing people and that's how they should be dealt with. So there is a fair chance that the situation will only get worse before it gets better uh, for for people in that particular community as time goes on. My word. Uh, and But I suppose that the, the addition of monkeypox perhaps gives them some sort of 
well, there don't need any excuse given it's illegal anyway, but, but, but presumably it's to kind of generate some degree of public support that it's a health measure. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, right, uh, Thailand we're going to go to next. Now, uh, many people listening may have gone to Thailand uh, to smoke cannabis. Uh, perhaps uh, blissfully unaware whether it was legal or not, or perhaps not caring. Uh, but now it seems it's, it's legal, but it's still not legal. Or something like that. Yeah, it's one of those things. This is yeah. a bit like the scene out of Pulp Fiction, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where they're in the car. But yeah, this is Thailand. There's a few strands to it. Um, they're the first country in Southeast Asia, uh, an area that would be known for sort of stringent laws around narcotics. And they're the first country to basically take it off its banned narcotics list, right? Now, there's okay. a reason for doing this, right? The economy isn't doing so well, and particularly in the agricultural sector, right? Because of the price of fertilizer and that kind of thing. And Thailand is saying to itself, right, our climate has is very suitable for the cultivation of marijuana, okay? So let's grow it and let's make money out of it because there's a development around the world where it's being legalized in various different ways for medicinal use, in some cases personal use, that kind of thing. So let's make money out of, out of it, right? And they're sort of saying nobody else in this part of the world is doing it. We should, we should hit the front and be the trendsetters in this particular case. So they're saying that it's, it's going to be promoted, the cultivation of it's going to be promoted to the extent that they're actually giving one million bags or one million seedlings, I should say, to their citizens, right? They're allowing citizens to grow up to six pots or six plants in their house, all right? But they have to register. Okay. Okay. Now, already, there's an app that you could do that on, by the way. It's called Puka Ganja. Uh, And you can register there and already 100,000 people have registered to grow these plants, right? But you cannot consume it above a certain level of THC. So that's the bit in the plant that gets you high. Okay. So if you're using it above 0.2% of THC, it's illegal. Okay. Uh, now, wh- what do they plan to do with these plants then? All these people are are uh, registered to grow them. And then what happens? So basically what they're looking to do is, I think they're looking to try and grow the tourist industry around it, which, as you alluded to already, they're probably doing fairly well on that side of it already. But they're going to be able to use it in cooking and various different things like that. Then it can be, others will get licenses to produce it on a massive scale so that it can be used for medicinal purposes and the like. But it's like you said, it's that whole grey area. So they're saying the law is you can't do anything and you can't you can't smoke it publicly mm. they, they kind of underline that bit if you do so you'll be fined $780 you could end up with uh, going to prison for three months um, but most analysts are saying it's a bit of a grey area and they're wondering how the police are going to be able to monitor the level of THC in particular in yeah. but it seems like these uh, these plants are intended for kind of CBD type products absolutely uh, rather yeah. than going to you know getting up uh, getting a little baggy yeah, down from exactly. Their, uh, yeah. From that, 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 that's exactly what it's for. At least that's what they're saying. Right. Okay. So the, the illegal trade will carry on regardless, anyway. There is, without a shadow of a doubt, it will carry on. And and I think what's actually a, a big part of that is as well. They are releasing four thousand people out of prison as well, who have been either picked up and prosecuted for possession uh, or for growing. Now, there's a side of me that thinks, well, a they're doing it to free up the prisons, and the other side of it is thinking, well, there's four thousand experts in there that we need to grow this stuff, <laughs> um, so let's get them out, and all of a sudden uh, they become entrepreneurs. Uh, okay, so this might be just the thin end of the wedge. And- until full legalisation, perhaps. It, it could be. Yeah. I mean, they, they're at pains to point out that they're not going to go that way, but 
it seems okay. inevitable. Yeah, who knows? Uh, right, Iran, we're going to go to next. Uh, uh, unfortunately, another terrible tragedy there. A train one, was it? Yeah, this, in this case, it's a, tr- it's a, a train wreck that happened. And, and it's interesting that you say, unfortunately, another tragedy yeah. there, because, of course, you're alluding to that um, building that collapsed last month in, yeah. in Abadan and killed 40, 43 people. Uh, there was major protests about that, right, in, in that particular city in the southeast and uh, sorry, in the southwest and uh, and in various other cities around the around the country, but this was a, an awful tragedy. Twenty one people killed, and dozens more were hurt. So we expect the, the the body count, the death toll, I should say, sorry, to to rise further. Um, it was a night train, and it was travelling from the east of the country into the central part of the country when it hit what looks like a, a digger. Right, an excavator, and five of the carriages, five of the, ca- the carriages came off the rails, and as you said, twenty-one were killed. It was carrying three hundred and fifty people at the time, so it's actually a bit of a miracle that more didn't die. In fact, yeah, is there a wider issue around perhaps infrastructure and that kind of thing within Iran? Yeah, th- this is the third incident that I can think of in less than twenty years. That's involved a train crash. So six years ago, I think there was 50 people killed on another one. Uh, And then there was one back in 2005, 2006, I think it was, when 350 people were killed. That was was on a train crash involving oil and all sorts of things. And I think five villages were destroyed and all sorts of things. An absolute uh, tragedy, that one. But uh, yes, to answer your question, there does seem to be... Okay, the and problem with rail. One, yeah. one assumes that's you know because the the country is economically pressed yeah, anyway uh, for for various reasons. Uh, right, uh, Israel. We're going to go to uh, next uh, uh, Iran's closest uh, closest friend, uh, and uh, this is a kind of a strange one in 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 that the most right wing nationalistic MPs are voting against the the thing that they would uh, uh, they would value the most that being continuing control over the west bank yes uh, that that's it in a nutshell um as you know a year ago a new government uh, came in in israel uh, 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 naftali bennett was the leader of it and it, uh, just a quick recap on mm. why it came to power and why it's important, because there was four elections last year. Netanyahu and the Likud party, they came back with the most seats, but they couldn't form a coalition because yeah. everybody hates them, effectively. <laughs> everybody outside of Likud hates them. Um, so Naftali Bennett put this eight-party coalition together, right? And it's the most bizarre coalition that you're ever going to come across. There's a, they had a majority of one, I think. And there's people on the right... There's people on the left and there's um, four members from an Arab party that are involved. First time yeah. an Arab party have ever been involved, right? So they came together purely to make sure they kept Netanyahu out of power, right? Yeah. Netanyahu's out going on, is it three charges or three corruption cases at the moment? And there's mm. a libel case and all sorts of things. So they wanted to keep him out. And he va- he has vowed to basically try and bring down this government because he says it's dangerous, right? And last week, they took a vote on a law which is called the Judea and Samaria law. And effectively what that does and what it has done since 1967 is it makes sure sure that the Israelis who live in the occupied West Bank, and it is occupied, there's no other way of putting Mm -hmm. it, uh, are under Israel law, right? The the, the rule of law of Israel, right? And what they have to do is they have to renew that every five years. But last week, they, Parliament, the Knesset, voted against the renewal of that particular law. And who was in the opposition? Only Likud. Likud, who for the last 12 or 13 years have always renewed this particular yes. law, all of a sudden didn't think it was a good idea and voted against the government. And the government lost by 58 to 52. There was a couple of defections as well. 
uh, the, well, I suppose the defections being the more important thing from exactly. the point, uh, point of view of, the, of this uh, uh, government surviving. Absolutely it is. I mean, on the face of it, there's a massive problem with this law not going through and that if it doesn't go through, it means that you've got 500,000 Israelis who are no longer pl- protected by Israeli law, mm. right? And all of a sudden, they go into the same bracket as the Palestinians who are living there, which is basically uh, military law, right? Because it's a military occupation and that's not what you, where you want to be. So... The could were kind of asked, well, you know, why would you vote against this? And they're saying, well, it's purely political because we want to show that we can bring this government down if we need to. And they will rely on our votes the next time this bill comes around. There will be a second reading of it. Yes. And it's more than likely that they will have to go to Likud and say to them, you need to help us here. Having said that, without wishing to go on too much longer, having said that, while the coalition has eight parties in it, the opposition benches have 19 parties in it. So all you need is a few... Wow. Well... Healy Rays and the like yeah. maybe over on the other side and sort of, you know, maybe do a deal and get them to vote on the second reading of the bill and the whole thing goes through. Uh, one would assume that their first port of call for a deal would be the people who defected in the first place yes. who were from that party. Yeah, absolutely. But that, maybe that includes the four Arab MPs who, yeah. for very obvious reasons, yeah. were too keen on voting You're this. 100% right. Quite, quite strangely, it was only one from that... Now, there's only four of them, but it was only one from that particular party who decided not to vote with the government and the other one was from a left-wing party called... Meretz, I think it's called, something like that. Um, so that's uh, very interesting uh, set up there at the moment. Yeah. If it fails again, though, the, the, there's all sorts of interesting ramifications yeah. from this. Yeah, absolutely. They, the police couldn't arrest anybody in there. It's, it's, it's bizarre. You know, they, they'd call into question whether they could collect taxes. It kind of becomes ungovern- ungovernable. And would it also affect perhaps Palestinians... Who were arrested under this, you know, the, under the civil version of Israeli law? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, oh, no, they, well, they're dealt with under the military version, right? Of it. So, okay. so, so basically, it would affect them. Yeah, because uh, under that particular aspect of the law, they can be tried in Israel, and so I suppose most of the convictions would have been would now be ruled retrospectively as mistrials. Yeah, really. That is so interesting. Right, uh, Norway, we're going to go to next. Always, you can rely on Norway for the really sexy story of the week. Uh, Europe's largest battery recycling plant. Yes, this is a very quick story, Sean. Uh, uh, Europe's largest um, uh, battery recycling plant is called Hydrovolt, uh, which is a, a combination of two the two companies involved. One is called Hydro, which is the world's largest aluminium company, and Northvolt, which is a battery producer. Um, I suppose I'm including this because Basically, these guys say that they can uh, recycle and process 12,000 tonnes of battery packs per year. And they say that they can recover and recycle 95% of materials used in EV batteries. Um, so something to look forward to there. OK, indeed. Jonathan, thanks a thanks million. So. As ever, Jonathan uh, de Burka butler there. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2pm. On News Talk.